0: up and welcome to the temple of bleh this is a conversation with a man whose very name is etched into the walls of the temple of blade it's a man whose name has come up in many many conversations about and records and that man's name is mark abramson mark had two stints with roadrun records which total a uh, a sentence of 22 years if you want to see it that way his role at the label concentrated on radio promotions as such he was very much in the trenches when it came to pushing the artists from the roadrunner offices into your lovely ears this is a very very cool conversation and mark and i are very prone to jumping down rabbit holes and going all over the shop in terms of the crime chronology and that's fine and there's a special club for people like that and it's called the roadrunner ramblers mike Gitt is an honorary member as is mark as such this is part one of infinity you're gonna enjoy this one one two fuck it up <laughs> across them all and all roads led to you everything i was ta- <laughs> trying to figure out like especially around the type of negative um, campaigns like the bloody kisses campaign things like that things that i regard as really important to roadrunner because the big thing is roadrunner was a vehicle for such important things in metal and we're only coming to realize that now in like the in the wake of its its independent absence right so Everything, as I say, kind of, I'm just trying to plug a lot of knowledge gaps here. So you'll have to bear with me on my ignorance. But one of the things I saw you on as well was a Cannibal Corpse documentary. (laughs) Yes. I think it was like the first 20 years. And at that point, you referred to as Mark Psycho Abramson. And I'd like to ask you how that came about. And I know I don't think you use the term now.
1: You know, I've got a uh, a phrase now, which is, if you knew me then, you're still allowed. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there there was a point where uh, I kind of transitioned into a more professional uh, <laughs> thing. It was it was my own evolution. You know, you, you know, look there's there are there are so many similarities. You know, and, and yeah, uh, I'm a promo guy, so I'm going to lean into some of this stuff. But similarities to me and uh, and Roadrunner, you know, as we both evolved, um, the the psycho thing, yeah, it, it started off, you know, and and it also leads to to me getting to Roadrunner in a lot of ways. You know, my awesome. uh, my story was a a strong instinctive drive uh, of just an out-of-control metalhead um you know I went off to college in Buffalo New York um my my original plan was to become a DJ um I got my uh college FCC license literally over orientation weekend and um and then I found there was a metal show on the radio station and I immediately through because I was a brash, out-of-control kid. I, I made. I got myself to become the third man on a two-man team. Um, <laughs> and it was a very hair-metal-y kind of show, um, which is not my thing. But mm-hmm. I was a metal guy, and I wanted on the radio. Uh, it's funny, the, the start of the name was something as unexciting as I needed a radio name, and I wanted something <laughs> metal. Um, <laughs> it was something inside though that kind of opened up where I then kind of felt like I had to live up to it, but also I was let loose, you know, it was, right. so now I was away from home. Um, and I became friend. I started immediately started becoming friends with all the local bands, um, including amongst many local bands, uh, a band up there called beyond death, um, which featured, a bass player named Alex Webster. Um, it's a little bit more famous for a different band nowadays. Um, Alex and I became really good friends. Uh, we actually, and where the documentary, you know, where I, it's, I mean, yes, I was a big part of the beginning of the Cannibal Corpse story. Uh, I mean, Alex and I, along with our friend Joe, uh, we were roommates in this apartment on Grant Street. Uh, as Alex so beautifully dubbed it, it was the death metal animal house. Uh, I mean, what happened was, it was you had Alex from the local band and Psycho from the local metal radio show. And we were, we literally um, did, did not give two craps, Um and so every weekend we would have the metal community just converge on our slum apartment um, and just trash it. It was out of control. And, and so it, it's, you know, my, my stories, there's so many just stupid drunken stories that, you know, that it was just me being, trying to live up to a reputation that I created myself. Um, now what I realized, you know, and how we get to the whole Roadrunner thing, uh, and that was awesome, but I also, being an I. First of all, can I curse on this thing? <laughs> you can. You, you can eat. Right, eat so
0: I, in the C word. I just bleep it out.
1: Ah, so you're right. You're a Brit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, is as I was an idealistic little shit. Um, basically, I realized, and this was a big problem for the idealistic little shit that I was, is that I realized. That when I became a DJ, I wasn't going to have full control, full autonomy over what I played like I did on my metal show. Well, this was a problem. I didn't want to play what someone else was going to tell me to play. Um, I was going to have to play some crap. This mattered. Um, (laughs) But what it is, is so I then realized, I said, huh, as I'm sitting there and I was getting called all the time by these uh this is back in you know as as the industry was so much healthier then they had promo people calling the metal radio shows which is something you don't really have much now not from the labels um so i'm getting calls from all these labels and i start thinking huh i should do a i should go to the label side of things um and again i was laser-focused. you know. Alex and I really fueled each other on the underground metal scene. Alex was about as plugged in as a, as a guy could be. I mean, he was turning me on to all this stuff. I mean, it was like, you know, I, you know, I mean, I actually had every single earache release ever released wow. up until a point. You know, I mean, it was like so we were, I remember when Altars of Madness came out and we, sure. uh, I talked to the local record store who I was plugged in with to get me getting me an import copy. Stuff like that. The point is, is that I decided there was only two labels I wanted to work for. So not only was I going to go into the, uh, the business, but it had to be, again, I was, so much of this was a drive, and it was like, it was so focused, and I didn't, there was no widespread net. There's two labels I wanted to work for, Roadrunner or Eric. Now, Eric didn't have a U.S. base, so Roadrunner. So um, what year
0: are we in now?
1: Uh, this would have been, I think it would be about 90. So Eric's
0: already established. Eric's four years in. Digby's thrown out Grindcore to the masses. Maybe a few thrash. I think Carcass are on there as well. Roadrunner's yep, yep. got momentum now on the thrash and death element of stuff. This is sort of where, that's, that's the scene you're facing into at the minute. What's Metalplay doing at this point?
1: Well, uh, obviously, around that time, they were getting ready to sign Cannibal Corpse. Um, Sure. And so it was, you know, obviously, look, I mean, Metal Blade, you know, you could easily say, well, dude, why weren't you considering Metal Blade? Mm. I don't know, because that's where my love was. (laughs) You know, I love the Roadrunner stuff, you know, and I love the label. And look, there's, I always said, you know, It's funny. You laughed at the mug. Bleed Roadrunner red. You know, there's there's a thing about Roadrunner, and it 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 only grew over the years. There was something about it, Um, and so let's unpack that then, because that's what this that's what this whole thing is about. Because people aren't realizing
0: this yet. Because I'm shilling for a company for no reason, and we need to give it a reason. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm a fucking fool. It okay? Let's let's. How did you? What for me, right? The, re- the, the point I realized that Roadrunner was like a, a weird entity was 15 years after this story. It was in 2005. I picked up God forbid's um, Constitution of Treason and looked on the back yeah. and realized that it wasn't a Roadrunner CD. And I was like, that's Century Media. And I was like, all oh, right. <laughs> I thought, because being like a 15, 16 year old, I was like, right, well, this little red thing seems to be associated with this kind of, of sound, what we then referred to as metalcore. And then it yeah. was like, all oh, right. This is by design. This is this is like a, there's a thing going on here. So for yourself, take taking back going back into like 15, 20 years. At what point did you realize that Roadrunner is an entity? It's a force you reckoned with, and then it slotted itself into your ambition and drive.
1: You know, it's funny because most of the really critical stuff did have look. I mean, there's no question. I am um, so amazingly excited to be a part of the phase that I was in. Um, You know, it was like, I mean, I I did get the golden era and and I was got to be a a big part of that for sure. You know, it's, so it's funny. It's like, when you look back, the thing that made this, that red logo, the thing that basically if you saw that on a record, you bought it. so much of that actually did happen even after i'd gotten there so it was some kind of i mean yeah you had king diamond you had annihilator um and again it's you know as we're sitting here talking about all the extreme stuff um you know it's okay not to get a little bit too yeah you want this anyway and this is fine but it's all part of the big thing i try to explain to these youngins nowadays (laughs) that it's like you can only Open the door once meaning that now everything all this extremity is out there and that doesn't mean that there aren't great exciting bands uh you know breaking new ground there there are there's i mean always but you know when you look back and i sit there and bring up things like king diamond and annihilator and stuff like that it's like that was metal then um i remember As we were saying, I remember when things like Morbid Angel came out, uh, or Napalm Death, and as old bands as they are now, it's like that shit was mind-blowing. It was like that was the first time bands did stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, right, so you look back and the great bands, I mean, Annihilator, King Diamond, stuff like that, which were some of the earliest stuff. Carnivore, um, you know, these are some of the earlier bands that Roadrunner was putting out, that was great metal. Um, and it, look, it, I don't think it hurt that I had a great relationship with the uh, promo person, the girl who was calling me, who's still one of my best friends to this day. Uh, she was the one calling me. And so, so, you know, all this stuff binds together. And you know just to, to kind of finish up the story of how i got there just you know to kind of is it, and, and then it leans into it um because it all flows together you know i it's funny just because I, I love telling you. it's a little self-serving but i love it um you know i decided that i wanted to work at roadrunner so i called her up and said i want a job give me a job well, there are no jobs kid <laughs> like okay well, i'll be your intern let me be your intern you take interns She's like, yeah, 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 you got to, you know, you got to come in. You got to meet with the, the boss, you know, but yeah, yeah, we do interns. Uh, and I grew up on Long Island. She grew, she was living on Long Island. Um, so it was like, it was all local stuff. And, uh, but I went in I, I, to meet, meet with Doug Keough, uh, a name of. I'm sure you've heard. Yes. And I sat with him and I went, uh, I'm here for the job. And he looked at me. Hey, kid, what what job? You're not here for a job. And I, one of the cockiest things I've done in my number of years on this planet, is I looked at this guy and I said, "The job you're going to give me after you give me this internship, and I prove that you need me." <laughs> Looks at me, laughs. He goes, "Okay, kid, you can be the intern. <laughs> you got it. You got the internship." Um, but I was right. Uh, I because I, I put I as always. I put all the chips in center of the table. I said, "I'm going to make Roadrunner work," um, wow. and, I, and I didn't leave for many years. Um, was the was, was the girl who called you, yeah, yeah. Kathy? Kathy, yes, excellent. Kathy's uh, it was the person, and and she and I drove in uh, from Long Island together because you know, again, we didn't live too far from each other, so we commuted every day. Um, you know, and you know, there were she was much more of a accessible metal person so she would lean into because i i worked for her for in the beginning uh so she would love uh like like her big thing was you know last crack was her big thing uh she also however wouldn't touch exhorter with a 10 foot pole and i still to this day will say that those two records are two of the greatest records that roadrunner has ever released um i was like slaughter the vatican sign me up yes (laughs) (laughs) So, so we, we complemented each other really well
0: yeah yeah sorry um, I was just a
1: diversion it, no 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 all good it's uh so so the the brand it evolved you know I mean and of course you know look Monty is is famous <coughs> <laughs> or infamous uh, or legendary uh but there's a reason for that you know there was and it's funny because there was all this other stuff happening at Roadrunner but the stuff that put us on the map, because when you look back, I mean, it, it, it's funny. And I know some of the stuff we'll get into, you know, is some of the other tastes and flavors of Roadrunner. They were always happening. But Monty tapped into some of this pivotal stuff. When you look at, for example, that crazy band from Brazil, um, Sepultura, it's yep. like it, it, it. you want to talk about putting us on the map. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that started it because, as you know, success breeds success, and once you start getting some of the great metal bands, um, then more metal bands want to be a part of it, and then it, it's so you get access to this, and then it, people want it.
0: I, I think it's interesting the, the Monty's contribution because, of course, of, co- of course, it fucking is, but it, it's <laughs> it's not so much the hard work that Monty did at the label, right? This is my sort of weird theory, which I'm sure he'll. <laughs> send me a season to assist on it or something um but for me it's like the the interesting part of Monty's career isn't 87 onwards it's it's like 82 up to 87 this is the thing that engages me it's the three musketeers him Borovoy and Don Kay, and it's the networking within that which I'm sure you must have been part of as part of the radio with the co- was it a college radio or was it just radio
1: it, well, well, at the time, okay, when I got there, there was only college radio. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the commercial radio department uh, started later uh, when Case had me start it. Um, right. And, and again, idealistic little shit. He told me to go do this, and initially I said no. <laughs> <laughs> <But> that's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's the Lu- um, Luck luckily he looked at me and he's and he basically didn't accept it and he said, No, you're meant for bigger, better stuff than this. And it was so it wasn't like I missed an opportunity. He basically <laughs> said, Shut up, kid, you're gonna do this.
0: <laughs> well that's that's the case of leadership style, the way you probably just tapped in and went, This guy's idealistic. Tell him what he wants to hear. You're destined for bigger things
1: and you were He He would say now uh at 52 years old he still wants me to be a psycho he still wants me to be that kid he loved that um and there's a good reason for that it was drive it was energy it was passion um i was ready to go through brick walls for my bands yeah so i mean
0: that's that. a blue that's a blueprint of the label itself really i mean this is the kind of the i'm going all over the place and, and that's cool because long form. Um, Sometimes I think the reputation Roadrunner has, I think on the surface level is there's some uh, dissenting viewpoints, usually from artists saying, you know, that the deal wasn't too favorable, that there was certain things on the business side, which didn't stack up for us. And I think what people tend to miss, and hopefully this is what I'm going to try and penetrate is what people tend to miss is there's an entire operation behind the scenes, which is operating not to make money, but take it a step further to make more metal. That's what the roadrunner buildings were inhabited with. It wasn't a... There were charts and there were profit and loss sheets and things like that. But the end game for everyone in those rooms around those tables at their desk is to make more metal. And that's the whole idea. And I think Case understood that as well, which is why we have Psychos. And it's why we have um, uh, people like Monty and, and, and Doug. People just fucking loved it. People loved the music.
1: You know, it's interesting to, to, to address that. It's funny because... Yes, I listened for years to bands bitch about the bad deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you and I, before we started this, I told you, I said, I don't. There, there isn't any real negatives. Well, listen, here's the thing. I guarantee you that there are many bands that would disagree with me um, because they sign bad deals. Well, welcome to the music business. And I don't mean to sound callous, but my point is, is. That was like the, the model of the music business as a whole. So it's not like Case was out there raping or ripping people off. He was doing business as business existed. Um, now, and it's right, and, and Case is a businessman. Yep. Case is not the guy who bleeds metal. Um, and that's okay. What he did was, because Case wanted success all along. I don't say that as an apology to him. I say that as praise to him. He was a business owner who wanted a successful business. Yeah. Now, he's a music guy. His personal musical tastes are different. But what he did, though, was he he tapped in and he supported. And, and there are many business leaders that would say that their vision is the way it has to be and they'll try and 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 shave the square peg so that it forces into the round hole Mm -hmm. whereas instead i think what case's uh genius was is he he did tap into this and he leaned into it and yes he was always trying to get other stuff to work as well but he, he saw that this was happening, he leaned into it, and he surrounded, or he built his company up with a passionate team because as I sit there and say, I bled Roadrunner Red, well, let me also make it very clear, you're right, the, it was a family. And this isn't like I was the one who bled Roadrunner Red. I did, but every person in that room did. Every person there. Mm-hmm. was this was had this their version of 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 me, meaning like they were the same their personality of bleeding Roadrunner Red. Um yeah. and we all we were like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's and we'll cut co- we'll get we'll come into that in, in a lot more detail. I mean the example yeah. which I float around in terms of like you mentioned it was the it's a business it is a business first and foremost. And when we talk about those deals I mean, I, I did some maths in my head, right? And I was like, 83 to 84. Discounting the, licensed, the licensing arrangements that Case had with everyone around the world, you've got about 15 albums, majority of which I believe are original signings. So no licensing deal, but you are dealing with the artist development and mm-hmm. uh, some of the core foundational costs for production and things like that. Let's, let's assume it's a $5,000 deal each time. Five thousand dollar deal, fifteen bands. That's seventy five thousand dollars out the door, and it's a complete gamble. If you think about the cash flow situation and just the volume of it, it's no surprise that that's how the business operated. Because you've got it's entirely—you have no idea if it's going to come back, if it's going to be a a worthwhile investment. So even if your bands, yeah, you signed the five thousand dollar deal, it didn't work out. Yeah, okay, take your experience and times it by 15, 20, 25 as you move further through the road running years. And understand that's the gravity of the gamble that Chaos was making on an annual basis. And you got people like Doug doing the PNL forms going, fucking hell, it's quarter one, and we need to be at this point by quarter three. Otherwise, we're in big trouble, I assume.
1: Yeah, it's, and you have to think, think about the genre that we're talking about here, yeah. where, you know, okay, it's the. The, there is only, I mean, but only one band that really just knocked it out of the ballpark on their first record. Uh, mm-hmm. Slipknot. I mean, that's it. Because yep. it's, and, and I'm not saying that that was. It, it took a lot of work and, and, and all that stuff. But Sepultura, for example, who for the longest time were the the pivotal you know benchmark fashion it's like morbid vision schizophrenia beneath the remains it's like these are it's like they didn't start to really kick in really until album four now that was the old business model of artist development so you, it's right that's why the long term deals that's why look i mean because you were investing it is a long-term gamble um you know, and it is what it is. I mean, obviously, as, a, as I know, one of the biggest places you want to go. I mean, one of the most important deals uh, in the history of Roadrunner, of course, came from, you know, an artist signing his life away. Uh, um, as if he was still with us, he would tell you, as he did. Mm-hmm. So none of this is a secret. I mean, the reason we have typo is because of Carnivore, which is because Peter was still under contract. Yes. Um, you know, Roadrunner had Peter. Um, and so you can sit there and say, now I'd say it all worked out well. And yes, they're, they're dear friends of mine. And I listened to them bitch for years about the bad deal. I'm sure there were aspects of the deal that were not good. I'm sure I ain't the lawyer. Um, I wasn't the manager until now (laughs) when it doesn't, (laughs) when it's a moot point. Um, so I get it. Um, yeah. It is
0: what it is. I guess my point about all this stuff is there's there's a veil which needs to be lifted for us to understand this properly and give it its proper due, and I think that's what the job is. And more importantly, putting us back into the chronology, it was a yeah. bit wild westy. So it's really compelling to me that when you walk out one day and go, "I'm going to get a job at either Earache, I'm going to move to Nottingham, I'm going to move into <laughs> a fucking um, a red brick sixties flat, or I'm going to go down the road and go to Roadrunner." It, it, that to me is, and again, it's about that drive, and that's another conversation entirely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something, it's something industry specific, I think, that that draws that out of people. But you've walked in, you've told Doug what's up, and you start the <laughs> internship. So what's yeah. what's what's happening? Have you, this isn't done through case. This is done through Doug in his capacity as, as manager of the late, uh, that office.
1: I Co- imagine. Correct. Right. Yes. Okay uh doug was running it and you know there's there's nothing about the hiring of the intern that needed to be on case's radar whatsoever uh free labor so i didn't meet him until you know after the fact you know just fine it's you know layers
0: (laughs) (laughs) so when do you so tell talk me through experience as an intern all the way through to getting the real job and then was there a different perspective once you were walking in as a paid employee or was it just part of the family by that point did the duties change
1: well you know when i started it was right i was calling metal radio stations um and that was this amazing realization where it was like wait i can call up metal heads and talk about metal for a living i'm like (laughs) how did this happen in life? Um, but yeah, so it started off simply as, you know, she would give me, and I would start off with the smaller stations and the heavier stations, the more extreme stations, you know, that was her going here. You talk that language, you go talk to them. Um, and so, and that's what I did until she eventually moved on into another job because she Mm -hmm. got a great opportunity at another label. Um, At which point then, so the whole thing was a little bit of an evolution because I then went from unpaid intern to part-time employee somewhere along the way. Um, And then they actually uh, also hired a guy who wound up becoming uh, one of my best friends later in life, my best man at my wedding. But he was brought in uh, as the guy and he actually gave him the more commercial, bigger stations uh, again, he was kind of, he was from North Carolina my, my friend's name, Steve Prue. Uh, um, and he was there for a little while, uh, mm-hmm. again, fresh little hothead. I was really, I, at first I was, I resented him because, you know, God damn it. That's, you know, it, it, I was goal oriented. I wanted that job. And so it was, and then it evolved and eventually the, he wound up being let go and I was given the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then there were people that, that were then put below me, um, And so it was really just uh, this slow slog march towards growth. You know, it was like, so it it just grew and it just evolved. And I just, so the the duties just kept on building, you know, steadily. Mm -hmm. Um, It it never all of a sudden, until the big thing was, is when Case uh, and Doug and I went out to lunch one day this is uh, years in where and they said, we need someone to start calling these, you know, commercial radio stations and, you know, for regular airplay and you're going to be it. Um, or we think you should be it. And I was like, oh, I don't wanna do that. Um, and at which point they said, at case, said something along the lines of you could be one of the greatest promotion people ever. You're meant for more than this. You, you got to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point I was like, oh, OK, OK. Um, But obviously, it changed, you know, look, it's a a little dramatic, but yeah, I mean, what happened changed the course of not only my life, but it did change the course of the label, Um, Mm -hmm. because our biggest, I'll do a little, this is, look, it, it is what it is. I don't believe that the biggest radio story that put us on the map would have happened if it wasn't for me cool. because of what typo meant to me and what i did i don't think that another person would have been as as determined because it was not an easy task and i don't think that i that Having lived the life I've lived and worked in the peers of, of commercial radio promotions, people, mm-hmm. I don't know with a, with the kind of band they are that anyone else would have not given up um, mm-hmm. because it was unheard of what we were doing. Um, okay, and people thought I was out of my fucking mind for even suggesting that they play this thing and i think at some point most people would have said it's just not gonna work so okay it changed everything
0: let's let's jump into bloody i want to talk a little bit about how the label expanded from sort of thrash and death but i think you are moving quite swiftly into the bloody kisses
1: campaign it's, it, 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 just not to just to kind of to touch on that just a second, and we will mm. look. Bloody kisses is so much a part of of my story. We'll jump back into that. Okay. I think the key thing that people do need to remember, though, is it's yeah, there were always other things happening. There was an yes. there was an alternative uh, brand from the beginning with immergo with Gangrene and all this stuff. There was always all this other stuff that was happening. Mm-hmm. And so that's and that goes back to case always trying to find the stuff that works. But but yeah, so it's kind of go where you want to go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah no,
0: it's it, it the lot a lot of compelling phrases you use there. It's like the, I remember reading a lot of the trades. This is probably a, a good. This is probably why fucking the, the the psycho angle really played because usually I I will check like the Billboard trades, all the stuff that is recorded and online and things like that. You are all fucking over the trades. This is how I found um, uh, Sydney Maxwell. And this is how, obviously, we got in touch regarding that Fear Factory um, image. Um, There was one article which is, I think it's like wine and music. There was something like you were trying to pair music with particular brands of rating records and wine. July the 5th, (laughs) 2002, with Sydney Maxwell. You're all over the fucking shop. And there is one article where it's talking about, I I can't remember the exact. theme of the article but it was something to do with like the effect of the promotional game and and how it's changed over the years and there was two chaps that were talking about yourself and how typo was just not going to play it's just not happening whatsoever until you can beam over the head with a bat and eventually they grew to love it but i'll tell you what my experience and my knowledge is of this particular thing uh the bloody kisses campaign is because You are the authority on this as far as I'm concerned. However, I did speak to Jim Salaby, and the thing I find so compelling about it are two things. One, it was always Case's mission to get a platinum record in the U.S., platinum single, platinum record, blah, 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 blah. In pursuit of that goal, he sat Jim down and said, okay, you're my head of sales. I want a gold record. Now is the time. It was as simple as that. And it took Jim, Doug, a few other people, perhaps yourself to sit down and look at the roster and go, what's the most viable gold record in this? Typo. Off we trot, boys. And there we go. Is that about right? The design of it is staggeringly, it's so compelling to me.
1: You know, it's, you know, Typo was, was always something it was interesting because you know obviously as we know, okay so we had him with carnivore uh hardcore band um and then you know uh we got the repulsion demo um which as we all know really is slow deep and hard um and that you know and that was staggeringly brilliant if you ask me uh you know one of the one of the best things that the labels ever put out that I'll wax poetic on that. Um, And then, of course, uh, there was the origin of the feces. But no one really saw coming what came. Um, You know, and that was really Peter, you know, leaning into, as we all know, where he really wanted to go. Um, He didn't want to be carnivore per se he's much more of a goth oriented guy um you know and it was like it's funny i went back to kind of look to kind of try as i told you to kind of get a grasp on on the time frame on on certain things and you know it's it was interesting because there was actually the other one that was around that time there was a couple things that you know and it's funny to kind of you know put it all in a time frame. Um, There were a few things in 92 that could have been it. Uh, And so there were a few things that we tried. It wasn't actually just this. I mean, yes, there was absolutely, at at the time that the decision was made, it was a, we're going to break this record, period. Um, Mm -hmm. Or is it exclamation point? But when you look back to ninety two, you know, you had a couple things. There was the Grunt Truck record, yeah. um, which was us trying to kind of tap into and this was one of the first things I did at commercial radio as well. Um, and that was us trying to tap into the Seattle thing, it's a great, great record. Um I just yeah. love the fact that I got to work with Tommy Accused, but but I digress. Uh, um and so and we weren't ready for that, you know, as a label. I've I, I looked back and I go, you know, I don't think we were. And the band was all, you know, Ben used to always bitch about it as all of his friends, you know, exploded into multi-platinum status, you know, because the, the Seattle scene. Um, but that just, it, it, it opened some doors for us, but that wasn't the one Um there is, of course, uh, what I consider to be one of the black marks on the label, uh, which is Star Star. Um, but that could have been it, according to some people. Renamed themselves recently. Um, I, I, Good. I'm glad to hear that they're still doing what they're doing. All good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the typo thing, like I said, the reason why I, I take so much of the statement I, I, and the stance I said is I, from the moment I got the Repulsion demo, typo changed my personal life. You know, It tapped into me like it did so many other people, but it was one of the most important things for me at that point in my life. Uh, it, it connected with me on, on a level beyond. Um, this is before I was friends with the guys. This is and mm-hmm. we became friends rather quickly, but it was such an important record to me. so when it came down to it, and the bloody kisses, of course i don 't think anyone needs to be sold on the fact of how brilliant that album is. Um we heard that, and it was like okay this is this is it, and so this was I was going to get this thing on the air, and I refused to. Hear otherwise. Now there is so much of the life with the landscape was different then. Also, is this was at a time when uh, radio stations still took phone calls, um, something unheard of now. To a large degree, pretty much you know, almost you know. I mean, there are some stations that may hear this thing and take exception with that but for the most part no one's taking live phone calls anymore Mm -hmm. the point of that is you could get what was known as a reaction record where you could put something on the air and the phones could explode and so this was at a point where it was like if they were not and most people were like I'm not playing this it was black number one um, which we worked twice Um, Mm -hmm. the point is we started off with black number one and it was like they were, I'm not going to play this thing. I'm like, just test it, just test it, just throw it on the air. You don't have to commit to it. And so we'd get a few test spins. And again, people, phones would Mm -hmm. melt down. Phones would explode. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and it was wild. You know, I was like, like just, tell people there was myself and a good friend of mine over at epic were in the process of, uh, I was doing this while she was working this crazy band out of Bakersfield, California called corn. Um, (laughs) obviously they eclipsed us quite a bit. Um, but that's okay. But it was like, so we, the the two projects were I believe really single-handedly pushing the envelope for commercial radio in the heavy aspect. Um, and so, and we did this for two years. Um, we worked bl- uh, Black number 1. We worked Christian Woman. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and did another round of Black number 1 to go get some of the people that refused to play it the first time around. Um, so it was really, it wasn't, it was more about, it was about building an artist. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't about getting a number one radio song because that wasn't the kind of campaign it was. Uh, it was too long, too drawn out. But every single station that added it snowballed this thing and mm-hmm. it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, a big part of this also was that there were certain artists, and again, some of this stuff is well known, who, who also, I mean, look, it, this is, I'm not sitting here single-handedly saying that I broke the band. I know my place in the story, but you could easily look at things like uh, The Run of Dates with Nine Inch Nails. Um, which, even though it was only about a week or so, was amazing and had them play in some pivotal markets like L.A. Uh, And then there's no overstating the importance of the Motley Crue tour. And that came from Motley Crue. Uh, They wanted the band. um, And... That's I mean, and so and again, and that started a string of amazing touring opportunities. So the mm-hmm. whole thing, one feeds into another, into another, into another, into another, and next thing you know, we have the first gold mm-hmm. record for Roadrunner.
0: It's the radio stuff's really interesting because a lot of the times when I'm speaking to to people such as yourself, it's it's there's always a a sort of an introductory statement of back then. But the thing is, now it's the engagement economy like, and subscribe, do this, do that, click this link, affiliate link. It's always been that. It's always been, if you are if you can indicate that you're getting the, the engagement and people are spending time on your platform, then you are winning. And it was the same back then. And it's the same now. Always has been. It's just the tooling's different. But the thing I find, it, it is interesting how it was a snowballing effect. And I, I quite like the seeds, which it's interesting because Keir planted seeds, didn't he? He had you there with... A teaspoon and a brick wall, saying "punch through that brick wall." He goes down to the idea uh, Sony Red guys and says, "Right, we're pushing this because they've also got the retail from as well." Going, you know, you have those independent relationships. We need this to go gold. We'll fly you out to Amsterdam. This is going to be a thing. How did the band respond? Did they know that they were the Golden Goose and they were they were going to be that? They were going to be the flagship band by design. Is that is that a disingenuous way of looking at it?
1: Uh, look, they, they certainly knew they were the guys, you know, and that maybe not at first. Um, and they certainly, they are very much who they are. Uh, there is certainly no false pretenses with those guys. So in other words is what you see is what you get from them. Meaning is that they were never going to walk around, um, what's the saying, the cock of the walk, you know, they were never going to be walk around saying, you know, we're the shit because that's Mm -hmm. not who they are, but they certainly knew that, you know, I mean, look, and you could look and you could see that we had our big metal bands. um, And you could also always argue that for the longest time, Sepultura never relinquished a certain crown, too. Um, especially when they got you know, they had the first major label partnership with Epic for Chaos AD, so I mean, that was also very, very exciting. And because of the ties with, with Sharon Osborne and stuff like that, so it's, I think, they knew, mm-hmm. um. You know, and we certainly, we were, look, I mean, obviously it was great. The band was, was, uh, getting bigger and bigger and they certainly wanted it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like they were like, you know, they, 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 they you know, once Peter committed, <laughs> and again, as, as we all know, you know, Peter at first didn't want to quit his day job. Um, but once, once he committed, it was like, okay, this needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I mean, that's, look you no know, half it. um. Taking a step back, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, could any other label of the time have known how to deal with typo like Roadrunner did? I know you're biased, and I know the answer is no, but I think this is the thing, isn't
1: it? I, I agree though, because um, Metal Blade wasn't set for the commercial radio stuff, Earache wasn't set, and they didn't have the US backing yet, you know, eventually they cut that deal with Colombia, but they weren't set yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the other ones at Century Media, um, you know, uh, Nuclear Blast, these guys were not doing, like they weren't set for the mainstream success. Um, and then if you look at the majors, I, again, I don't think that they would have stuck with it. I mm-hmm. think that they, you know, even if you look at something like I mentioned corn, you know, who were groundbreaking, you know, as big and as mainstream as you may look at them now, corn, you know, who I back to my last breath as well, um, as groundbreaking as they were, there's still there's a certain uh accessibility to them. You yeah. know, as heavy as it was, it was a groove, it was song based. That's the thing. It was typo. You're talking about a band. That's the different thing, and that's where I think the the big mainstream entities would have had a hard time uh, committing to something as bizarre as this, because that's the big thing, is the song thing. Um, Korn would write heavy but amazingly uh, groove-ridden four-minute songs with a hook. Um, Type O would write nine to 11 minute long epic sonic journeys. Um, that's not radio. Yeah. <laughs> that's not an easy thing to sell. And and the edits, horrible, <laughs> because they couldn't not be. Lose How do you take a nine minute long song, make it four minutes, and have it not be an incomplete thought fragment? Yeah. Um, we did the best we could and obviously there was great success with it but it was like yeah so i yeah i'm biased but no no one else could have done it
0: yeah it's 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 a beast unto itself. when i maybe it's just the way that people learn to communicate so after the fact right when when i'm showing typo to people who aren't really into metal i call it sex metal because it is kind of like it occupies that it's it It's not, I can see why people would object to it in a, a, not object to it, but I can see why the majors would take objection to maybe pushing it as far as Roadrunner did simply because it's somewhat taboo. The subject matter is a little bit more um, crass than maybe what they're used to, even in an underground sense. Um, But that's kind of the appeal. I can see why it resonated with yourself. And it's the same reason it resonated with me. The first one, the first Tapaweb record I bought was uh, Dead Again. in 2007 and i saw him whacking that year and it wasn't until i started this project where i was like let's go back and see what the fuss was all about and then it just fucking kicks me right in the teeth maybe it's just like there's like an age cynicism with myself as i've sort of moved out of my 20s which it maybe it got its hooks in or something like that um so the goes gold alan becker decides he doesn't want to fly over to amsterdam but he sends his, his minions to go over for the party
1: but not not to interrupt but you know you, hmm. you said something though uh that also i think is important sure in that you know, you talk about the content matter and being whatever taboo or whatever case definitely uh was certainly not afraid of controversial subject matter. Um, he he enjoyed a certain amount of controversial subject matter. Um, you could easily look through our catalog and see th- times where we, we tapped into that. Um, and so the idea of going with something controversial, whether it be sex or a severed head on a brujeria record mm-hmm. or stuff like that, um, you know, it, absolutely is something that case would would get a big grin about he liked a certain amount of that so uh yes there are certainly some people that would and and i know 2021 everyone's afraid of anything controversial mm-hmm. but we would lean into it absolutely so <laughs>
0: have you heard the apple knockers flophouse house story uh i have not i will send you that This is case in 1965 or 1969. This is like this is perhaps the genesis of his um, understanding that controversial is good. Um,
1: So how is he? I I was I was uh, present at a dinner uh, where there were three of us that went to a Hooters uh, as he was considering opening up one. (laughs) Um uh, <laughs> and uh so uh, he, I and someone else went to went to Hooters for dinner to go and experience the the whole thing. Um not obviously not much came of that. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: um how are you celebrating the record going gold then? So the sound scan um details come in. In case everyone gather around, we finally hit the milestone. Alan Becker's minions are off getting shitfaced in Amsterdam. Um <laughs> How are you, how are you celebrating?
1: Well, we had the, uh, uh, the celebration in Brooklyn, uh, with mm-hmm. the band, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the infamous, that plaque picture was, uh, uh, Italian restaurant in South Brooklyn. <laughs>
0: um, was it Christmas time or was it, they just have that kind of decoration up?
1: Uh, just that kind of decoration. <laughs> <laughs> it's mm, welcome to fucking Brooklyn, yeah, you know, I don't remember any. I mean, it was it was wonderful, and it's funny. Like, I remember that day vividly. Um, you know, you could see in that picture. You know, well, it looks like I just left the gym. Uh, it's because I literally was like so. Like the the girl who was who was our press person was like, uh, "Mark, you think you can breathe? Maybe." I was like, nope. I, like, literally was, like, so proud of that moment. It was, like, this fulfilling uh, destiny thing. But it was just what we did. I mean, that was, you know, at that point, I had long since considered myself to be the fifth negative, Um, (laughs) you know, and it was just uh, uh, amazing. But um, I don't remember any specific thing. (laughs)
0: Let's, Let's sort of unpack the where the label was there for at. So this is the milestone yeah. moment. This is where if case hadn't if case wasn't considering the prospect of a metal label viable at that point, he certainly fucking was once he got the gold record. Um right. So I can't remember who told me this, but his isn't his ultimate objective was to get the platinum, was to do it in that, that territory of the United States. Just to sort of hit home the gravity of the gold and the first yeah. gold for Roadrunner, what is so important about the united states as a market compared to the rest of the world maybe it's some, not something you can quite comment on because you're a u.s operation and you yourself you're a u.s colleague but why was that important to case because rodron had, had gold by that point just through different channels in say the netherlands the benelux area and things like that
1: you can't deny the importance of the american market on the musical uh uh sphere. You mm. know, it it's such a huge market. It's obviously economically, but also it's you know, there are there's so much uh to the US of being, you know, the it's like the hub. Um mm. I mean, yeah, you could easily look at I don't mean to I mean, y- you can certainly look at certain places around the globe that have been um, you know, birthplaces of Earth-shifting, you know, musical things. You could Birmingham, England. I mean, I don't need to explain the importance of Birmingham, England. Liverpool, England, another one. I, I don't need to explain. So there are certain things. Seattle, you know, yeah. you could look at certain uh, uh, things that come out of certain areas. But overall, you can't deny the importance of the the scope of the U.S. market, um, and the guess- importance of us getting that gold record was. And it was beyond just money. I mean it was of course it's money, but it's beyond just that bit of profit. It legitimized us as a label on the mainstream playing field. It allowed us to be taken seriously with all the majors because at the time independent labels were not allowed to play in the same playing field as the majors and this allowed us to play in that game
0: that's the fucking soundbite
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm a
0: promo guy <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so important to you because this is something I, that people will be sick of hearing well my 10 listeners will be sick of hearing me saying but this is why roadrun is so important it was a disruptive force and in exactly. the space of innovation technologically culturally socially the 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 word disruption is the big word, and that's what's rock and roll. It's, it's a positive disruption. And when we take Simon Cowell trying to put his foot in the door with shit TV shows and making money through an out al- more algorithmic, certain um, market trajectory, it's really fun to see nine nut jobs in jumpsuits selling platinum records and disrupting that because that's really important. And we could have other conversations about the trajectory of Roadrun. I Imagine if everything they did was platinum. it maybe metal wouldn't be so special and the other side of that would be no you drive weird as shit underground and the the the, the culture propagates itself in that way but that's the thing isn't it that's why roadrunner is so special because it was a vehicle of disruption for the wider status quo and that's why we need to learn and unpack and reverse engineer how case did it and how you did it how monty did it so we can better learn how to
1: administrate the metal of today well, here's the thing. You have to also remember is that Slipknot, as earth shift as they are, and they are, period. End of story. Uh, haters fuck off. Um, not that there really are any, anyway. But Slipknot was the culmination of, or, or whatever, the uh, the payoff of years of exactly what you're saying. And meaning is that look at the successful run. And this is the thing. There's a reason why, okay, Slipknot now are Slipknot. But there was a time when Slipknot also wanted to be on the Roadrunner Red brand. Mm -hmm. They wanted that because when you look at, I mean, look at what was happening. When you've got your obituary who, you know, at the time, I mean, it was like, you know, here was this crazy band, uh, this death metal thing, where the singer wasn't even using words, and it, and the the roar that came out of John Tardy's mouth, it was like it was, you know, there's your disruptive. So you got your obituary, you got your your Machine Head, you got your Fear Factory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got uh, well, obviously Sepultura at this point are now. It's like they're less jarring because they're bigger. Uh, okay, it's like look at, at at all these you know these bands that are you know and then and again there's a whole wave of legendary metal bands. Uh, Malevolent Creation, not as big, but Malevolent Creation, uh, Sadus, um, mm-hmm. who I, I mean gave us Steve DiGiorgio, one of the greatest yeah. people to ever pick up a bass in the metal world. Um, you know there was a wave. And of course, as I said earlier, two of the greatest records that Roadrunner ever put out, which I don't care. And and he will Kyle will not say this because Kyle is a good man, and I back him. And so I'll say this without exhorter. We don't have Pantera in the form that everyone worships them. Kyle avoids this with a one-mile pole because he's he's a good man. He doesn't need that hassle. Yep. I'm saying it. Not Kyle. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just yeah, just to... so, so Slipknot is what comes from years of putting out these amazing, successful metal bands that brings, and then Monty finds. Now, again, I'm not, it's like, so that, that allowed us to be like, dude, because who knows whether Slipknot would have signed with us or someone else if um, you know, if we didn't have all that was Slipknot um, and, uh, oh, DSI had another one. I mean, again, yes. you could sit there, you could find all these bands. So the great now, Slipknot were a force of nature, or are a force of nature. Slipknot are masters of their own success. That's not to take away Roadrunner's piece of that, but Slipknot came out and they hit the world like an atom bomb. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is not to take away anyone's work, Mm -hmm. but those guys are, are owners of their success because they are just Slipknot.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, there could be an entire conversation about the culmination of attitudes, work, and understanding potential also was a prelude to seeing them and going yes as opposed to seeing them and going not viable nine members no way this is too fringe you know there's that they, they all work in sim, um in symbiosis symbi is that word oh thank
1: God. Yeah. what it is <laughs> look it's they got that Ozfest slot yeah and that's why i, I give them credit for their own success and again, that's not a diss on any of the co-workers at Roadrunner at all. I state that emphatically. But the point is, is they got that OzFest slot. And there was nothing like them. And they went out on that stage and they just... It was like, fuck you, we're Slipknot. And it was like... You pay attention to us, and they came out there and they stole Ozfest that year, they stole freaking Ozfest. Um, and so that's why it's like so. It's he came out and then that thing just and then, yes, the label had to do its part. And again, it's any of my co workers hear this. This is not a diss on them. You just <laughs> cannot deny the force of nature. That
0: there, are, there are some there's some bands just to help you out like okay. with that so there's some bands which were like even if you stayed at home all day for a year they would still be the like huge bands one of them's Fear factory
1: mm-hmm. one of
0: them okay. Slipknot. one of them is nickelback one of them's trivium kill switch yes um there's a, just a few where it was like it was just they the sheer amount of willpower and direction and drive all falling into the right slots it was always going to happen the nickelback thing is interesting
1: you know and and again and i i again i'm one of the people that will defend them to uh near violence uh <laughs> those are good dudes whose mm-hmm. only crime is that they succeeded yep. um as much as people like to to shit on nickelback uh f you um but here's I think what done thing now. with Nig- that? Imagine
0: Dragons are now that, that whoever occupied that platform to be shat on for success is now Imagine Dragons. and then people are now a little bit more nostalgic for Nickelback, but yes, continue.
1: Right. Nickelback was interesting because um, the first record well, that we had, the first record um, well, that was a, a two-year-long slog, um, and it was not, it wasn't the gold record. Uh, it was not A breakthrough success Mm -hmm. it was and those guys worked their fucking asses off we dragged them to every radio station in america to do interviews and meet and greets and acoustic uh events on the air Mm -hmm. Um, those guys worked their fucking asses off and they absolutely no question about it now that being said is so so. It wasn't a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. However, the next record, Chad, who is an amazing songwriter, gave us uh, a, a the like a song the likes of which I have seen very rarely in my career. Um, that was a hit off the scale uh how you remind me was holy shit big um and yeah okay at that point you know as i like to put in perspective to people i go um a lot of people don't necessarily remember the day that Silver Side up came out 9 11 9 fucking 11. <laughs> I remember we had had a number one record. It was huge on radio, the whole buildup. And, and this happens. And I remember saying, one of the things that I said that week was like, okay, this record's going to sell 42 copies. I'm like, no one's going to the stores to go buy a record. America just got attacked. This is horrible. This is like, you know, uh, it's I'm like, no one's going to buy this record because no one's going to go buy any record. And people went out and it was you know with a it, this massive opening week sales that week and i went really i'm like i'm like you we just got attacked as a nation with this horrific terrorist attack and you still feel the need to go buy this record i'm like that's a statement so yeah. it was yeah it's uh, and yeah the nickelback were you know one of the biggest rock bands on the planet and that was uh, a gift to be able to work with those guys, and they are some of the nicest guys on the planet. uh who, Again, whose only crime is that they succeeded.
0: Yeah, yeah. We can unpack a lot more about that. Yeah, but we have skipped over a bit, and it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's a, we're we're pinballing. I oh, love know? it. I love it. This is this. I live for this shit. This is so good. Yeah. I was going to say, you thought your biggest problem on 9-11 was coming out the same day as the new Slayer record. <laughs> that one's like, That's not the case. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, All right, let's, let's bounce back to 1991. Yeah. So you, you, you're in the role, you're yes. doing the thing, you're, you're, you're interfacing with the thrash and the death. But there becomes, yeah. there becomes comes there's two things I consider to be a bit of a catalyst for the label at this time. One, case is... Instruct Monty yourself. Someone he communicates it in some way, saying we need to move away from thrash and death. We need to expand. And then there's a second thing that happens, which is sound scan. And yeah. I think those two things, like in in unison, created a market of alternative music, which is where Rodrigo sort of state its claim or tried to for the next sort of nearly ten years. How did you feel about that? As as a heavy dude like as a guy who's you know looking at what area he's putting out and uh, you know having a a stake in the cannibal corpse story were you thinking "Fuck, we don't want to get involved in this fucking
1: in this plaid shirt shit it it was okay because first off like i said is you know the emergo thing pre-existed me you know i mean it was like the emergo thing you know you, so there were, even when i walked in the door uh in the little independent label seven people in a room that we were all sharing one computer um yes that's the, the stone age that we existed in uh you had to sign up for computer time but anyway <laughs> <laughs> you kids i used to walk up hill five now anyway <laughs> um <laughs> the point is is that um so there was always a certain flavor of that there, and there was always when you look through you know so there was always stuff, whether it be um, you know a doggy dog, a black trained jack, uh, the third mind stuff, which was really you know very different um, you know so there was there was always these attempts and I think that my attitude was always like whatever you go play around with that shit we gotta the 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 meat and potatoes here is the metal stuff because that was obviously what we were mm-hmm. and so uh and there was so much awesomeness you know i think it's funny i i always i have to go back and remember like i mean in 92 we had the biohazard record i was trying to remember yes. the year you know that was another one where we were attempting I news mean, all this stuff biohazard grunt truck um Along with your fear factories, your obituaries. Um, so we had all these different flavors of metal that this other stuff was like a little side dish. And because of okay, we need it for me and who I was, Psycho from Roadrunner, I was the guy, I was the metal brand, whatever. So the thing is, is they would get they would bring in another radio person to do that stuff because, and so, yeah, you could easily say that I was pigeonholed. Okay. I was happily pigeonholed, you know, uh, for the longest time, you know, I I didn't, I never really cared about wanting to be a part of that other stuff. And they could, if we were growing enough, they could hire someone else. And there Mm -hmm. were, uh, there were all uh, modern rock or alternative promo people over the years, um, there was a Carolyn Wolf. There was a Tom Gates. Um, there were these people that came in, and, and great. I mean, I was thrilled to work side by side with them. Uh, I've got nothing but amazing things to say about every single one of them. And I was also happy that they were there to work that shit. <laughs> <laughs> you say, What did I think? Oh, you go work that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was all good. I was the it, master of the metal world.
0: <laughs> yeah, the king of your own domain. So exactly, where yes, do am I putting too much credence in SoundScan for affecting the output?
1: SoundScan changed the whole business, um, you know. But I think the reason it helped us is because I think the world got to see how how much validity metal had. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, some of these bands. I got to now walk around and and show people, oh, you think this stuff is stupid little underground shit? Well, look how big it is, Mm. you know? And so that's the way I always looked at it because my whole sales pitch was always these bands are doing stuff to a level – that the, that these radio bands are not doing and you're not giving them credibility. Like for example, is, is there was the time when I tried to take Sepultura to commercial radio, um, you know, with a non-English speaking song, Radamahada, uh, cause it was like the most like groove based or whatever. Yep. And, and no, it didn't really work, but I got some airplay. But the point is, is I got to walk around to people and say, look, you're playing Radio Band X, who's selling 42 copies. Well, look at Sepultura, who are selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And so it, it allowed us the proof to say, look at what's real. Look at yeah. what's really happening on the street. You can't deny your listeners what's happening on the street. So it, I looked at it as something that helped us.
0: Um, it's, it's interesting. So when Roadrunner started in 81... It was on the strength of Bertus Distribution in the Benelux area. And it was all, the, the, the vibe was essentially, everything was tipped off to Case. It was like, by a guy called, I think it was Dirk Van Hoofel, I think his name was. If I remember my research from um, three or four months <laughs> ago. And he's the guy that would say to Jan van der Linden and Case, right lads, we've got a lot of imports for this band, fucking battleax You should be selling that. That's where it is. And it's interesting because that's the spark Nielsen comes in and validates the spark, and the gold record is the ribbon that makes you go, Yeah, this is a totally that's the trajectory, that's the story arc of metal in Roadrunner being an appropriate vehicle for success. That's just sort of like in my head, that's how the story sort of pulls together. Um, Okay, so as we move into sort of the latter part of that decade, Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that 96 and 97 were regarded as tough years. So we're now moving into, we're, we're well into <laughs> you're seeing what comes out in 96. I'll, I can help you out a little bit. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you, you know, look, here's the thing. You go back to the beginning of this conversation, you talk about, you know, the psycho thing. Yeah. Um, everything that happened in college was the opening act for me. You know, I was <laughs> let loose when I came back to New York and then got into, you know, the New York Industry and uh, you know expense accounts and and just and and us all f- fueling each other. Yeah, dude, I I was out of control. So I remember so much, but you want me to talk about specific years and stuff? That's why I print this shit yeah. out because yeah. it's like it gets a, it does get a little fuzzy in there about which is which. Mm-hmm. Uh, I burned some brain cells, but
0: yeah, yeah. But yeah, Well, it's the last part of that decade is what I'm saying. So we're talking yeah. like post bloody kisses, pre. Um, slipknot, there's this gap which is not necessarily blurry, we've got the flagship acts that are still churning out the fucking goods, but there's still this expansion that's trying to happen and it, I don't think it necessarily takes um, and I'm wondering if that's where this sort of uncertainty was coming from, because I don't regard this as like, if you look down, me- back, maybe it's hindsight, but it doesn't feel like a bad period, it doesn't feel like a period of uncertainty it just feels like growing pains If anything.
1: Absolutely. You know, it was... I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff that we put out. Uh, A lot of cool things we tried. Um, You know, there was a whole journey we tried with uh and again it's and as I, I look back to, to get my years you know you're right because when you look at like 94 to 96 that's when you started to have things you know you had um uh okay that's when Black Train Jack and Dog Eat Dog hit but that's also okay you also had Die Monster Die which was yes. a big attempt for us at Modern Rock but also that's when we had a little bit more of the, the uh, a Rootsy A thing with Kevin Salem and Blue Mountain. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there was, again, and there was always these tries. Again, when you go back years before, when you look at the last crack thing, you know, there was always these projects that we were trying. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying about Case being a businessman in that, you know, he wasn't pigeonholed in that – I need to be only metal. No, 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 no. He wanted a successful music label. Um, all good, you know. God, God bless him. You know what? Without that drive and without that desire, we wouldn't be talking today. Um, exactly. But so he was always trying different things. Um, I mean, and and then you look through this stuff. But yeah, you, but we were still on a tear with the stuff that kept us fueled because again you can pull out all these records that happened. in then frontline assembly was in 94 you know and that was a great record although to Mm -hmm. me that that seemed roadrunner anyway even though it was more techno it was like it was so aggressive um, yeah. you know, but it's like, then he, you look and we're still doing the third mind stuff. Um, you know, the moon seven times came out. So you, it, but that was not new. I mean, we were still doing all that, uh, kind of, you know, that electronic, you know, alt alt stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but 95, you look at me, 95, you had demanufacture. Um, so and you can't overstate the importance yeah. of that record. You know, as, as great as Soul of a New Machine is, obviously D-Manufacture was mm-hmm. a holy shit record from Fear Factory. No, it wasn't the gold record that happened with um, *With Obsolete. That was the car's cover. Um, but yeah. D-manufacture is what put them on the map and that's still going to be hel- heralded as a legendary metal record. Um, you know, we're still coming off of uh, machine head just starting, um, you know, I mean, and, and with the, the initial burn my eyes. So you're, you're talking about, I mean, obituary at this point are getting a little long in the tooth, but life of agony are just starting. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's 94, 95. So there's always, you know, we had something each year, Um, and, but yeah, okay, you can look and see, and and you're right, when you brought up that point about was this a a tough stretch, you're right, there weren't that many big records, but there were records each year Mm -hmm. that when you look back, the Roadrunner fans look back on fondly and say, yeah, um, I
0: guess you got to you think know, of it as a but, working day, right? So, like, if you take all your working hours within those years, I guess then you can have some nostalgia for the early '90s when then something gets hit out of the park. It's like it's it's the catharsis of all that work. When you have the flagship acts that are carrying through the latter part of that decade, it's kind of business as usual, and anything else is an admin overhead. I guess. Yeah. So maybe when people think back on that, or maybe I don't want to speak for people, but there are, I'm sure you're about to lose to some, which didn't quite make it through. So for example, um, Ratos de Perao, which is, I believe it's, it was a Brazilian, I think that was Roadrunner Brazil for a bit, which brought in a lot, which didn't go very far, I don't believe. Garage for Screaming Mother, loads of like ones that we don't hear about these days.
1: R- RDP man, I, I loved RDP, but look, there's no question. RDP is is about as simple to understand as it gets. Sepultura, yeah. um, meaning Sepultura brought them to Monty and mm-hmm. said, "These are our buddies. You should give this thing a try." Um, it's a fucking great record. Mm. I still go back and listen to that record. There are those those two records that we put out to this day, yeah. they're great records. Now, uh, right? Did they did they blow wide open? That's But you know what? That's The thing about labels are is that you go into each thing with different expectations. Yes. And you spend accordingly. Um, so, so, for example, is you don't spend on an RDP like you're going to spend on um, a Sepultura. You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they're both from Brazil. Yeah, they're both aggressive. But one's going to get the a-level budget and one's going to get the c-level budget
0: this is the true this is like the the, the dark art of a A&R, though isn't it because yep. as provocative as brujer is you do understand that it's an underground record by design and therefore its its potency is usually in in the packaging and it's, it's not going to go too far because well I, I, that's that's disingenuous. It went far in that in that what it is is done really well. However, you're not going to push it like typo or negative because you're going to hit a lot of roadblocks on the way, usually pertaining to the front, uh, the album cover, the rotating members. It's not quite got the same product viability as, say, a saboteur or a typo or negative. And again, that's the dark art of AR, trying to spot those things and understand well, what's the number? How many hours are we going to put mark on this?
1: Hurria was fun and a pain in the ass because <laughs> I loved working it because we had to sell that story. Mm-hmm. The problem is is the story was not the true story. Meaning right. that in the beginning they were Mexican criminals. We were not <laughs> allowed to say who was in the band. <laughs> we had to sell the fact that Monty was thrown into the back of a car with a bag over his head, taken to an undisclosed location, forced to sign the deal, like it was a whole press release, it was like we were selling the story we were selling the shenanigans yeah. and that was fun but you wanted so badly to be like, dude you should care because look who's in this fucking band <laughs> mm, mm couldn't say now we know who's been in the band whether it be dino or you know uh chain or whatever it's like but it's it's at the time so it was fun but it was a pain in the ass because you really wanted <laughs> to just be like dude you, gotta...
0: <laughs> you got a thing here yeah i didn't know that it was like everyone was anonymous back in the day first record everyone's anonymous <laughs> Wow, i know that had, yeah. that had the, the the aliases but I didn't mean, know it was like. I didn't know you couldn't find out who they were unless you really tried.
1: Word got out, but yeah, yeah, you had to work for it.
0: <laughs> do you remember a band that's escaping me now in terms of a name? Shit, what was it? Toy Shop.
1: I didn't work it, but I do remember it. Again, it was like they didn't really have me work too much of the super alt stuff. Um, the, I didn't there was expect a point, you would. It, it, well, it was interesting because there was a point around – it was around 97 when I left. The, um, mm-hmm. And then I left for three years. And then they put someone else in my chair, a guy named Joe, friend of mine. Um, he was a little bit less pigeonholed. <laughs> And again, that's, you know, that's more of a shot at me than anything else. But yeah. that's okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I ain't apologizing for nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then when I came back, you know, so he did some, a little bit more of the, uh, the gray area stuff. Mm. And then it was funny because then when I came back three years later, it was funny. I, uh, the job that I had left I still remember it was I was at TVT working with Seven Dust, um, right. and there was a demo that was floating around the business, um, and we amongst everyone else got it, and it was what I could, called a Bush ripoff band, um, and that of course was was Nickelback, and I was like, <laughs> dude, we should totally sign this. This is great. They sound like Bush, mm. um, and. It, it turns out that no one was going to find them but Roadrunner because Dave Lonko uh, really had the inside track on that. And so I was able to come back for the setup of the first single, Leader of Men, yep. for Nickelback. Um, and so, and then obviously that just changed everything because from there on, not only did Nickelback change the label and take over everything between Nickelback and Slipknot but then that also started us in beyond I mean not viability but beyond success in the mainstream rock world we got Theory of the Dead Man from that mm-hmm. uh, and it was like and on and on and on and on um, and so I really it's like I was always kind of left out of the alternative thing the problem problem was that I didn't care because I was mm. so happy. I w- I had already succeeded in my dreams and my goals, and was continuing to.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it was all good. <laughs> I mentioned um, Toy Shop specifically because there's some yeah, weird, yeah. there's some strange story around that, and I'm trying to unpack it. it. It's, I think it's something like one particular territory really pushed Toy Shop, and it was like a South American singer. And they ended up on like shampoo bottles and stuff. And this is a roadrunner act. It's crazy, but I need, I need to figure it out. I, I, I'm gonna tap out of that one. That's cool, man. <laughs> you mentioned a name which I wanted to unpack a little bit because it's not come across my desk a lot until I started like looking into the trades. And that's uh, Dave Loncao, Is a uh, Dave Loncao? How do you pronounce it? L- Lonco. Lonco, Dave. Okay. Dave Lonco. Um What's his story? Is he is? Yeah. What's what's the what's the deal like? Because it seems like his introduction to the label gave it a lot of credibility. That's what I feel like I'm reading, but I don't know his backstory.
1: A- absolutely. You know, it's... Case was always trying to bring in a, a big gun for the, our, our first uh, the radio world. Um, uh-huh. That was going to be my boss. It was going to be someone that, you know, coming in with all this experience. And I was in, it's funny, I was in this weird little, because again, it's, my story does flow in with that, or at least Mm -hmm. from my perspective of it, um, because it also, it led to my leaving. Um, And that was, I was this weird little contradiction of cocky little shit who definitely was thinking who he was, who he was, uh, after I was having all this success, but Thankfully, I was also smart enough to know that I could only self-teach myself so much. So I wanted someone to teach me. Now, the problem is, is that Case tried several times to bring these people in and they were a series of stumbles. How's that for a nice way of putting it? Mm -hmm. Um, These people didn't work out. It's part of my cockiness was that I I kept outlasting these people they brought in as my boss. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, the point is, is so I was I was both uh, happy yet frustrated and looking for looking for more to grow me and my career, mm-hmm. and I wound up finding uh, one of the more important people in my career, not Roadrunner, but my career was this woman named Valerie DeLong. She worked for a company called The Enclave, which was uh, run by Tom Zutat the A&R guy who uh, gave us uh, Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. Um, great, 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 great guy. Uh, I worked there for a little while. She was amazing, helped change my life, sat me down and said, listen, kid, you're good, but you're not that good. I'm going to help you. And she did. But the point is, so then I went from there. and Then we shut down, and that's when I went to TVT. Uh, TVT was great, got to work with 7Dust. The guy who owns TVT was uh, legendarily... Um, problematic <laughs> how's that for a nice way of putting steve Gottlieb <laughs> was a pain in the ass um i was trying to get out of there for a while and i was interviewing at any job that opened up because mm-hmm. i wanted out um as much as i loved working with seven dust uh that label was i i was not happy and at one point i did interview for dave over at rca um right. and dave's a Dave's just a good man. I mean not only is he insanely experienced and insanely successful but he's also a good guy. I mean he was like you know no no, no one uh, rejected me from a job in a nicer way than him. Um, anyway so the thing is is that I wanted to work for him and I had tried to get a job from at RCA and he even wrote me this really nice letter saying like I would hire you in a second, but I have to do this internal promotion. If my people don't feel they can grow, and it was like really a personal touch of like, Mike, it left me with this. I'd I'd like to work for this guy. He's obviously a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, he got the job. Uh, he was brought in uh, over there at Roadrunner, and he is he's he's incredibly experienced, incredibly successful. His his story is 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 long. Um, And then it turns out when Joe was looking to go to Columbia Records Mm -hmm. to go get a great opportunity for him, it was funny. He had called me because my goal, it's funny, my goal had always been that I was going to, I was always going to go back to Roadrunner. I had this whole vision. I had the whole thing laid out. Mm -hmm. I was going to go back as the guy in the big chair. Mm -hmm. That was my goal. I was like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to run the thing. Uh, and then, but Joe calls me up, and he goes, Hey, I'm leaving. Would you ever think about going back? Uh, and I went, absolutely. I said, I, I planned on it. Um, and, uh, so he, you know, he can, he said, no one knows this yet, but I'm leaving. He goes. And so I reached out to Dave. Um, we connected mm, long story, a little bit less long, um, mm-hmm. cause it's too late to be a short story <laughs> is, I wound up, I, you know, it's, I was like, I want to work for this guy. Mm-hmm. And so I took, we, I, I convinced them to bring me back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came in and we were, I mean, we were an amazing team. Um, a big part of it is, is that he's the right guy. Uh, he certainly embraced me in, in the proper position, meaning of me as his, his guy underneath him. And I definitely embraced him as the guy on top. And then you look at what we did, you know, it's like any, any question about whether or not the guy was worth working for, or worth respecting, whatever you look at what we did with Nickelback. Yeah. And it was like, salt. I'm in <laughs> Dave. You're a good man. <laughs> um, and, and, and he is, it's and our friendship, Continues to this day. He's, he's a great man. What's he doing now? Um, I actually haven't spoken to him in a little bit, but uh, he he joined the Nickelback management team. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, he went up first. Uh, he retired for a little while, but I think what you find for a lot of us people is, you know, retirement is, is tough for some people. Uh, yeah,
0: especially in this industry.
1: So I, I think the retirement thing was temporary, um, but he was always tight with Chad, mm-hmm. uh, always. And so that that was about the least surprising thing that I ever saw happen with <laughs> uh, the Nickelback management team.
0: When you initially left, so obviously yeah. you kind of you're wearing your heart on your sleeve all the time, going, "I need to learn somewhere and then come back." How's Case responding to this? Is he like yeah, little shit? Or is he like fair enough? Go grow, and I'll see you in five years, or however long it was.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, I haven't seen Case be—you know—he's he, a—he he's, doesn't get overly emotional with people, um, and I don't mean that in any negative way. Just mm-hmm. you know, if you if you talked to him, if you know him, that's just kind of who he is. Um, I know he always loved me. Um, loves. I mean, he still does. He's still here. He's just, it's like all good. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was an interesting parting of ways because he wasn't happy about it. He did try and get me to stay. But I also told him that I, it, it was something I had to do. Um, we certainly left on emotional but good terms. Um, and so I made sure to leave so that the door was still opened. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't clearly stated, "Hey, I'm going to come back," but I definitely left it in absolutely good terms, so yeah. that when it came down to it, um, you know, <laughs> it's actually, it's funny. You sit there, you say, it's, "It wasn't so much the leaving; he was actually an important part of." me not fucking up the return um so funny i put too much emotion you talk about all this roadrunner stuff i put too much emotion you talk about the heart and the sleeve i put too much into it because mm-hmm. i was at, here i am i just told you how i was miserable at tvt yeah i was trying to interview every single job that, that opened up i gotta get out mm-hmm. and i told you about my goals about the whole it's like I overthought the crap out of this. So what happened was is I had reached out to Dave and said, and I, and I said, hey, let, let's talk. I hear you're going to have an opening. Let's talk. And he goes, okay. We went out to dinner, he and I. And he was like, so, and I, and I was dancing around it. And it was like, he's like, so why, why are we doing, why are we sitting here? Why are we talking? And I said, I don't know, dude. I said, I need to feel if this feels right. Like I didn't even come in for the clothes. It was like I just kinda is hey you know, we're we're courting you know, look mate you made pizza with a knife and
0: fog this isn't gonna fucking work and,
1: and and the thing is it's funny because i they then come back and everyone assumed that this was the what was it a fait complete, so they make an offer it was all just kind of like to like hey, hey, hey here you go, you should come back, and I of course put way, 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 way too much emotional baggage on this. And I put myself into an emotional little uh, traffic jam where I basically said, I I wasn't convinced yet that it was the right time. Uh, And so I actually, I actually said no. Um, (laughs) Because obviously if it didn't feel right, obviously it was wrong. Sure. So I had accepted uh a new uh new like uh, i accepted to stay at TVT and then uh they called first off jonas uh, who again when i started seven people in a room jonas Knoxon who's a name you've heard he was the marketing guy so he like we we go back to like you know um we he and i actually our first interaction was actually when i was in buffalo at college radio but that's a whole right. other thing um <laughs> Where, where he had to explain to me that King Diamond wasn't going to actually give me the prize that I had won at college radio. Uh, but that's a whole <laughs> other thing.
0: <laughs> I want to hear everything. I'm going to say, let's save that. One.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so he calls me up and he's like, what the hell, dude? And again, it was like, and he basically goes, I'm calling up to reject your no, which is what I was like. Uh, oh, the God. thing is that I'm sitting there and I was just like, now I'm sitting there like I'm a mess. And and, and and case wound up reaching out to me and being like, "Mark, what are you what are you doing? Come back, come back." Uh, at which point, and then it was like, "Okay, jackass, what are you doing?" I'm like, "This is what you want? What's wrong with you?" Um, and so, obviously, I came back, and uh, it was. Yeah, I was at college radio my my they did a contest where King Diamond was supposed to go to was it uh, the Universal Studios or something like that and go along with like the 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 tour. I don't remember which record it was. It was whether it was Abigail or them or whatever it was, whichever mm. doesn't matter. No. Um but my and it was like and it was a whole big thing and my it was like the if you ran the state of the contest on your station, and if your winner, your listener won, then the listener and a guest and uh, DJ and a guest got to go do this. Big, big contest. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think, I don't think that anyone actually got him to sign off on it. King, um, right. okay. not a hundred percent on that part. So I will not go in writing on that. But all I know is, is that, um, Kathy had to pass this off to her marketing guy, Jonas, who then calls me, uh, the uh, <laughs> poor college kid who is living with the bass player of Cannibal Corpse, who was, uh, you know, scraping on uh, our the, res- the beer cans from our parties to buy food for each week. <laughs> so then they call up and said, uh... So listen, uh, uh here, we're gonna write you a check for like five hundred bucks, uh, and the winner and like like is that okay? Now it's and it's funny, and I'm like <sighs> I'm like I scored big woohoo. Now it, and yeah. it's, of course Roadrunner got off easy because sure. they saved all this money. Um and I still and it was funny. So I got I wound up getting a job and Jonas would for years be like, I want my money back. <laughs> <I'm> like, no, <laughs> So, yeah so, I don't, yeah, so I literally go back to before when I was in Buffalo, but I digress. <laughs>
0: but, yeah, no, it's a good story, though. A new life form. How are you doing for time? Uh, let's go another,
1: you know, 10, 15 minutes. <laughs>
0: let's do it. I wanted to, I don't think we're going to get to the, the full end of all these questions, which is totally, totally fine. Hang on. i did that out.
1: I'm a rambler. What can I say? <laughs> oh, dude, I'm I'm all in for this
0: shit. Sorry, I'm just making sure that. No one's needing my attention particularly quickly.
1: No, as long as you're going to do that, I'm going to do the same here.
0: Yeah, I'm technically on the on the clock, so. It's been yeah, quite week, me too. so Sorry.
1: Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> All right,
0: yeah. This is where I look at the waveform, and I see Wait. I'm editing bits.
1: Wait, and let's see what Marty sent me. Oh no! Real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid YouTube thing i got to sit through a commercial for eight, seven seconds. Bear with me. This could this could be good. It came from Monty. Yep. <laughs> I've got an email from Mike
0: Vani and Kathy. That's me. No, I sent this like, I sent this to him last last night. Oh. I kill all the white people. That's the sample that was in Kill All the White People. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yes. I was, I was asking him, um, what was I that? I was, I was sending him a Corey Taylor interview because there's an interview with Corey Taylor with Steve O recently where he, he basically talks about the Warrant Takeover. And I thought, I, I just said, that's pretty fucking bold of him because he still works technically for Roderick and Warrant. And I was like, also, whose idea was this? Because I, I was listening to Kill All the White People, as, as you might expect. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, Mike Varney and Kathy emailed me. They can wait politely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. One thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak to a chap in a few days, um, Ro uh, Cohill or Coley. Coley, sorry. Curly, yeah, yes. The impact, and this is like a marketing and promotional question, and we'll try, well, let's make it the last one because I think that this is something that is worth unpacking because it's very, it's got a very strong relationship with the UK branch of Roadrunner, the street team stuff. Do you know how the idea for the street team was incepted? Do you know how it kind of interplayed with the wider marketing stuff? Was this just Case going, fuck it, yeah, throw anything at the wall, see what sticks? I know that was that was Rose's thing, wasn't it? It was the street team, it was marketing promotion, and he kind of like, he was kind of an innovator in that space. Or was it already in existence in a big way?
1: Um, I don't think that we were the first no, okay. There's no way we were the first company to have a street team, but mm. we absolutely used it to amazing effect. Um, now, I think that there's, you know, there's there's two parts to this. One of which, as I said before, you know, was we had these great bands with great bases. So when you're working, when you're when you're starting off with great source material, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, great bands with great followings, um, then it's, it's easy to spread, you know, obviously yep. look, I mean, we're, when you're, when you're spreading something good that already has a start, then, then it's great. It's, mm-hmm. it's easier to take a small fire and make it a bigger fire than to start with no fire and make a fire. Yep. Um, you know, so it, there's no question that we had that. That being said, Roe also was is a beast. <laughs> Roe is a machine. Um, and, and you should definitely talk to him. And I'm glad you are going to talk to him. He's amazing. And he, he absolutely, uh, he took that street team to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, again, it goes back to a lot of what I was saying before. The people in that room bled Roadrunner Red. Um, you know, it, it's everyone took their passion for what we did and they put their heart and their soul into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just tell my perspective, my version of it. But Roe, for example, is another guy bleeding Roadrunner Red. Mm-hmm. And he was great at, uh, you know, marshaling that team, growing that team Um, and, and the brand, I mean, it all plays into itself. People did want it. Look, everyone wanted to be a part of, of Roadrunner Red. Everyone. so it was like, so, so when he reaches out, you know, it's like he didn't have a lack of people wanting to be a part of it. He just had to make sure that he had good people and that he got them doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and he was great at that. Uh, and he's now, he's got all this other businesses that he does on his own, he's doing great, Um, but that was definitely a big part of it, and again, because so much of what we did couldn't count on and couldn't get commercial radio airplay, which was such a big part of it, we, Roadrunner, was so much of of a street entity, so much of of a a reality-based entity, and we were proof that you could survive and thrive as a metal label without just getting the mainstream commercial art which honestly is a gamble anyway, because mm. it's expensive, and if it doesn't pay off, you're in the hole. Um, yeah, That's yeah. the nature of commercial radio, because it costs a lot of money to play in that game, and if it doesn't work...
0: I so, guess this is the thing, right? So, like... <clears throat> with it, with Roadrunner being the vehicle to commercialize fringe elements of music and put it in your face, what, the the, the biggest thing you could possibly, oh, the strongest marketing tool is word of mouth, I guess. And I, I guess what Rod did and what the street teams did was they militarized the word of mouth and they actually strategized around it. So, I mean, I, I say it has a really strong relationship with the UK and I, I think I, I'm trying to, unpack the relationship roadrunner has with the uk because it is something really potent there was something really present about roadrunner in the uk and i'm trying to figure out what it was and why it beat out everyone else and at the minute it's just a vibe because i lived it but the, every time i came out of leeds cockpit after a roadrun even if you want a roadrunner gig if it was any fucking gig there was always some dudes there with the samplers with the flyers with the things and it created some kind of it made it more tangible and I think something we need, like a forensic psychologist on here, to tell us that, oh, yeah, having something tangible in your hand was way more potent as a marketing uh, tool than hoping Radio One isn't shitting on Mark Aberson that month. You know what I mean? It's,
1: it, 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 yeah. It, it, no, when you had music fans leaving and that's the other thing is that when they were leaving a show and you stuck something for example stuck something in their hand for them to to wake up the next morning and be like oh yeah mm-hmm. um you know whether it be a you know early days cassette or later on a cd or or a flyer or something like that um, and it did get to a, be a point where eventually Everyone was doing the street team thing. Everyone was doing that. And, and so you left the show when you were being assaulted with stuff. But, you know, there was definitely a point where it was like, you know, and again, so that was a big part of what he was doing. You mm. know, and again, it's you're talking about the timeline. You know, we, it, there was definitely a phase where not everyone was as aggressive and as effective as we were. And uh, it, it definitely, it, it absolutely helped to walk out with something now, you talk about the UK versus the US. You also have to know we were a global entity. You know, yeah. we would have these uh, meetings. Not not so much me because my job was very US based. i mean, mm-hmm. US radio, but the thing is, but the marketing guys they would have international conversations and meetings, and they would all so so everything was you know communicated together. So we would definitely share things. And yes, some things would work better in other territories. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as doggy dog bitch and moan about how the U.S. label sucked and and didn't do shit for them, but yet overseas they were playing arenas. There was also it's like there was there comes a point where it it didn't connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but and sorry, but um, you know, so yeah. yeah, so so there was a communication though where we would share stuff across the pond.
0: Speaking to the innovative side of that, was there any other things that I might have missed in terms of how it would push itself? I know that I've seen quite a lot, of like there's some like advanced kind of promo, like there's a Chaos AD promo like film where there's some interviews and things like that. Was there anything else that I'm missing the boat on? I think the street team is a massive part of it. And obviously, the radio campaigns were also a huge part of it, especially in the way we contextualize it in legitimizing the label. I'm just wondering if I've missed anything.
1: You know, so much of it was the blood, sweat, and the tears of this unique group of of, of people. Um, right. and I, And I give credit to the whole team, because it's, I don't know, it's like, we had great acts mm. that we worked our asses off for. And yes, we definitely, you know, we, we would create these cool promotional materials and we would definitely try and grab attention on different projects the best way we could. Um, you know, and and if a, an artist handed you some kind of material that you could create some kind of cool promo off of, then we would absolutely lean into that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, uh, it's, we were just as I always say, success breeds success. Um, And as we continued on a roll, it was easy to build on that success with not every act, but with a lot of our acts um, mm. that is the nature of the business is that when you're hot people definitely tend to lean into you and mm. give you more credibility and give you more it's like look, when you're hot you're hot you're cold you're cold that mm. stuff is definitely true so like it's we, were, we, we were the shit in the metal world for a long ass
0: time I guess it's like it's just reliability, isn't it? People are gonna go back to people who are reliable. I think that's a good way to end it for now. I think we should definitely do another one.